this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Monday, December 3rd, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. George H.W. Bush has passed on to be with his beloved wife, Barbara, wife and mother of a president. And up there will be his father, Prescott Bush, the U.S. senator, and his maternal grandfather, his namesake, George Herbert Walker, for whom the Walker Cup, the prestigious golfing trophy, is named. What I'm saying is that heaven is nepotistic. And please know this. I've done quite a few interviews on this program about George H.W. Bush. I kind of am interested in the guy. I, in fact, came close to voting for him twice. Once, I was too young. And then, when I was old enough, I thought I'd take a chance on this Clinton kid and the quail thing. That was a big impediment, I thought. But I liked and admired George H.W. Bush. I thought he was a fair, you know, B2B minus president. And I'm a tough grader, unlike Yale, where everyone named Bush gets to go to school. I met George H.W. Bush once while covering the NCAA tournament in Houston, and we spoke about college basketball, and he was affable. Now, the passing of a president will always be big news, but it is kind of odd because there are a couple things the media knows. And one is that America is angry at politicians, but another one is that America loves a good, worshipful send-off for any well-known politician. Maybe it's the fact that he's dead now. But even a politician who embodies politics to his bones, who was born into politics, who oozes the hated politics, like John McCain and George Bush, they'll get fine, fine send-offs. And I bet the ratings will be good. That is why the broadcast and cable networks here, CNN specifically in this clip I'm about to play, knew that we would be interested in the last words of President George H.W. Bush. He was on a phone call with his son, former President Bush, as we call him, 43. They were speaking on a speakerphone, and uh, former President Bush, 43, said to his dad, you have been a wonderful father. And his father said his final words, which were, Jeb's smarter. Oh, no. Oh, no, Mike. Why so petty? We actually have the real words here. They're uh, teased by Jake Tapper in this tape. According to a source familiar with the president's final days, President George H.W. Bush's final words were to his eldest son, President George W. Bush, the 41st president telling the 43rd, quote, You fucked up in Iraq. No, come on, Mike. Mike, there's a human being we're talking about. A great public servant, a person like the... 288,000 people who died violent deaths, including combatants in the Iraq war. Come on. First of all, some of those people were assholes. And debathification, what the hell is that? Now, seriously, seriously, there were some touching last words that George H.W. Bush spoke. And this time it will be reported by NBC. In their last conversation, the younger George told his father by phone he'd been a wonderful dad and he loved him. George Sr.'s final words. Remember Colin Powell? Now that was a sharp guy. But Rumsfeld was kind of an asshole. Question. Question. Because those weren't the words. But I do have this question. Where my soul exists, what's there? What is that substance? Is that like chewing gum and tar? How did I become this horrible monster that I am, that I will not even tell you George H.W. Bush's last words? It was, I love you, okay? But let me tell you something. About all those horrible, shocking jokes that you thought I made just to be insouciant, 
They were actually a little bit of a tribute to George H.W. Bush, weren't they, when you think about them? Because George H.W. Bush, just like his son, had the chance to screw up the Middle East, but he didn't take it. I don't know how many people are going to say this at his funeral, but I can think of a few thousand U.S. military families and a few hundred thousand Iraqis who might want it to be said, but that's not how the mind and that is not how remembrances work. On the show today, more Bush in a spiel because I work in the media and it is the law. I must talk about him. But first, perhaps you watch the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country about the Oregon compound that was built by followers of the Indian guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Good film, compelling footage, but you know me, I can't not fact check. So we called up a journalist, nay, the journalist, who owned the Rajneesh beat at the time. Les Zates is featured as a talking head in the Wild Wild Country documentary, but he is here on the gist going into greater and to some extent more eye-opening detail. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Wild Wild Country, you may have heard of. It was the Netflix documentary that got a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and it concerned the Indian guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his followers who set up camp in rural Oregon, and there was, oh, let us say, some drama involved. Now, the documentary, to my eyes, was compelling. There was tons of video footage from the time, but as a journalist, some of my antenna were raised. On screen at times was a reporter, Les Zates, who reported for The Oregonian, and he did a 20-part series at the time, really documenting what the Rajneesh was up to. I wanted to have him on to talk about the real story, what he's doing now, and his association with this documentary. Hello, Les. Thanks for doing this. You bet. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So as a uh, piece of entertainment slash nonfiction documentary, what you think of that series? Well, they did, they did a good job overall. I, I believe they gave the leaders of the sect a little too much lenience to just uh, state things that weren't quite, quite accurate or quite true. But on balance, for people who have never heard of this story, this series uh, is, a, is a tremendous introduction to just an incredible story of what happened here in Oregon. That's exactly what I thought, too, because though the series was widely praised for showing both sides and not coming down too hard on this cult, when I dove in and read into your stories, I said to myself, well, they really are a cult. I mean, one of the articles in that 20-part series was just essentially religious leaders call it a cult. Yes. Yeah, and that series was done in the 1980s. We know much more today about cults and religious organizations um, and so I frankly shy away from referring to it as a cult. It was uh, just a, a pretty wild organization led by charismatic people who were just power-hungry for, for both uh, political power and uh, financial power. 
What were some of the uh, dark sides or cons- legitimately concerning, not NIMBY sides and not, not xenophobia, but what were some of the legitimately concerning sides about the Rajneesh and his followers? Well, once they set up uh, camp on what was the Big Muddy Ranch, a ranch about 100 miles or so from Portland, Oregon, uh, they initially claimed that they were just going to be farmers and raise organic carrots and that sort of thing. And then uh, pretty soon, uh, double-wide mobile homes were being trucked down the canyon into the ranch. You have a disco going up. You have a, a massive meditation hall that covered about three acres. And you suddenly had thousands of people flowing into this this area. And the group started exercising you know, political muscle. They weren't happy with just uh, living out in the, the boondocks on a beat-up cattle ranch. They wanted to take control of a nearby town, and they did. Uh, a near ghost town it was populated by you know, largely retirees who were just living out their days in peace and quiet. And all of a sudden, the little town of Antelope is renamed Rajneesh. There are... Uh, Rajneesh followers who are uh, carrying guns and badges as a licensed police force patrolling this little town. They probably hadn't seen a cop in years. And they wiretapped people. They uh, tried to poison their opponents. They launched this incredible attack in a nearby town called the Dalles where they cultivated uh, very deadly salmonella and then deliberately sprinkled it on salad bars in 10 restaurants. The, the largest bio terror attack in U.S. history that put uh, more than 700 people in the hospital. So, you know, this was not uh, just an issue of uh, a a religious difference or a difference about land use. This was, in some ways, a very deadly group. Did you think Wild Wild Country did a sufficient job explaining the bioterror attack? No, I don't. I don't think it... Me neither. That was a leading question. Tell me why. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, no. Because just the, the... Pure evilness of that act of so cold-bloodedly going into a restaurant to make people sick uh, and, and treating it more or less as a stunt, uh, to me, it just remains one of the most astonishing things that they did. Make people sick who have never done a thing to you, uh, including travelers. I mean, the, the city of the Dallas is right on a major uh, east-west freeway. So there are countless hundreds of people that stop in those restaurants uh, coming and going to wherever they are from. They're not even from the territory. And I can imagine that they drove four or five hours and suddenly were just deathly ill and had little clue what was happening until the news came out. And this was a dry run on a plot to depress the turnout of what you would consider regular local voters so that the Rajneeshis and their followers could in essence, stuffed the ballot box with, with by registering to vote, exercising their vote, and taking over county government. And that was, that was the, the entire intent of this. And what happened to him? What was the uh, legal outcome? Well, the Salmonella attack happened. Many, many people suspected the Rajneesh issues. It was, there was a, a tremendous investigation by the CDC, the, the Disease Control Center, uh, Oregon State Health Authorities, local health authorities, and the state officials eventually concluded, well, the best we can determine, a bunch of, of workers just didn't wash their hands. Mm-hmm. And it was always a sort of absurd explanation how uh, you could have workers in 10 restaurants all at the same time deciding they just didn't want to wash their hands for the day. Um, it was not until the ranch collapsed about a year later, when internal strife tore the organization apart, that that some key individuals that were in the sect uh, became uh, federal and state informants. 
And it was those informants who spilled out the details of what had happened, and that's how this came into focus and how the Rajneeshis became uh, charged with this criminal conduct. Right. And there were recordings and tape of the Rajneesh himself talking about the need to kill people to advance their agenda or vision of the world. But it seems to me that the actual punishment, it led to immigration charges. But, you know, no one doing hard time for a bioterror attack on U.S. citizens. Well, yeah, Rajneesh himself uh, pleaded no contest to federal immigration charges and was deported. Um, His top top lieutenants did plead guilty to both state and federal charges, and three of them served about two years in a federal prison in California and were released, and, and they were deported from the country. So in, in modern times, that punishment seems woefully, mm-hmm. woefully short of what was warranted. Yeah, yeah, I, I am just thinking, and this might not be fair, but post uh, 9-11, such an attack would probably land the mastermind in a supermax prison for a long, long time. It would be a significant sentence, if not a life sentence, right. in today's environment. The other thing that I think you could fill us in on that the documentary left me questioning is what exactly was the appeal uh, beyond we saw a bunch of people talking about questioning assumptions and love, but what harder edge tactics did the community use to, uh, to recruit members and to keep members from defecting? Well, this was a global enterprise. Uh, they, had, they had outlets in every major city in Europe. Uh, this started in India uh, when Rajneesh blended his Eastern mysticism with uh, Western theology, so to speak, in a way that drew intelligent people from from all corners of the planet, you know, United States, Sweden, England, uh, Germany, France. And these individuals all had their different motivations for, for why they were attracted to him and to his theology. If you if you look at it, I mean, the guy was quite smart and quite shrewd, but if mm-hmm. you look at his books and his recordings, it's one of those things that you can look at a picture and see what you want to see in it. You will hear what you want to hear that touches you in a way that that confirms some suspicion or bias or hope that you have. And uh, that was a very potent draw for people. And once you became a member of the Rajneesh group, I mean, you, you wore the mala, you wore the similar clothing, you ate together, you traveled together. So you became part of, of, a, of a rather closed universe. And uh, you were inward-looking as opposed to outward-looking. And and what about, I've read about, okay, if the word cult has uh, a pejorative connotation, but I've read about religious or pseudo-religious communities like that, and almost always there is a large sexual element, and quite often the founder uh, is is part of that. Did that go on with this community? Well, I think particularly in India that was, was part of the shock factor, right, to to have this... Uh, appearance of a wide open sexual conduct, which shocked the conscience of the, of the rather conservative people of, of India, but also just helped publicize uh, what was happening and draw in even more members. You know, at the ranch, you know, it was not like you were seeing uh, you know sexual orgies uh, alongside the road. It was it was uh, uh, you know one giant party for for a lot of people, but it was not in in my estimation. I mean, I didn't spend. 24-7 uh, for three years down there, but I was mm-hmm. down there a fair amount. It was not uh, a place that was just, you just check your clothes at the gate and uh, have at it. <laughs> Were there victims? Were there sexual victims that you came across? 
No, we we didn't. Again, back in the 80s, investigating sexual assault was would have been an extraordinarily challenging element. So while we heard some reports of of people being abused, uh, we didn't find any wholesale pattern of that. If a viewer of this were to come away with the impression that I think the filmmakers want to give an impression of, oh, ambivalence, on the one hand, there were excesses, on the other hand, uh, there was probably a lot of xenophobia and uh, paranoia on both sides. Aside from the bioterrorism attack, would there be one or two things you would tell such a viewer to give them a more complete picture of uh, the Rajneesh? Well, certainly. N- number one, they orchestrated a very careful assassination attempt to kill uh, Rajneesh's doctor, who was uh, by his side from back in India days. And it was a very deliberate effort to try and kill this man because he was beginning to suspect that Manan Sheila, the chief of the sect, and others were uh, betraying the guru's uh, wishes and thoughts. And uh, he damn near died. Uh, I think the fact that they very carefully plotted the assassination of a number of people, from the U.S. attorney to the Oregon attorney general to to myself included, uh, where they were very careful about planning and, and came very close to executing a plan to kill the U.S. attorney. This is not the conduct of an organization that believes in free thought and free life. Now, they interviewed you for the documentary. Yes, they did. And could you assess it as journalism? I mean, you've been, I think you've been both kind and reasonable because you are a journalist <laughs> and you interview people and you leave, uh, your, your duty is not to represent exactly what they want. But also, I'm asking you because it seems that you are at least as expertise in this story overall as anyone on earth. So as a journalism document, what's your assessment of Wild Wild Country? This was not journalism. This was this was a documentary with a particular point of view. Uh, it does not pretend to resolve any of the issues or conflicts. It simply presents them, um, and, and sometimes in a way that, uh, frankly, I found uh, too benign. And I think that's unfortunate. Uh, but that's that's the the choice of the directors and the producers, and they're free to make those choices. Um, I just think it left at the end of the day uh, a, a kinder impression of particularly key leaders of the sect than, than they deserved. Mm-hmm. And since it's come out, has uh, it affected your life at all, other than requests for interviews by guys like me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I have to say, Mike, I've been sort of shocked at the, the rather steady stream of requests to either grant interviews or to speak about it. You know, the, the Ontario City Library had me in for a program about two months ago uh, to discuss the program. Um, so, you know, other than and bringing back something that I worked very hard on 30 years ago, it really hasn't had much impact. Les Zeitz is a retired investigative reporter for The Oregonian. And uh, let me just tell you, uh, retired, let me tell you about a couple of his other projects. He runs a weekly newspaper, The Malheur Enterprise. That's the name of the town in Oregon. He's also just launched The Salem Reporter at SalemReporter.com. Quite a retirement. Thank you, Les. You bet. Thank you. And now the spiel. Do you think by Wednesday there will be any man, woman, or child news consumer who will want to hear more information about George H.W. Bush? To be clear, 
I liked much of the first 48 hours of remembrance, which gave way to the next 48 hours of hagiography, which was, of course, mixed in with some amount of angry backlash. And by Wednesday morning, who boy, look out. The establishment media love a state funeral. It's very validating for the hushed intoners of the major networks so they can calmly and magisterially narrate the TikTok of pallbearers and eulogists and maybe a riderless horse, and the phrases, oh, how they love to have the phrases tumble from their mouths to lie in state, remains, will be interred, final resting place, a calling, a purpose greater than himself. They will try to outdo each other with solemnity and import, and the rate of speech and volume of voice will rise to no more than this as the 41st president will leave behind a legacy of statecraft and decency. Oh yes, decency. Decency will be invoked. Kindness will be cited. Gentleness from a true gentleman. That will be said. And look, it would make for a better spiel right here, right now, if I pivoted and with fangs bared, I started railing against the flaws of the Bush presidency and vice presidency and candidacy. If I talk about the Willie Horton ad or how Bush turned his back on people with AIDS or how he created a panic over the war on drugs, which led to mass incarceration. Well, you want to know something? This ain't the news hour, but this ain't Chapo Trap House either. George H.W. Bush was a dedicated public servant. That said, his policies were often in service of the enemies of modern progressivism. And he got elected with the help of an ad that seems pretty tame by today's standards, but was a shocking departure back then. Still, George H.W. Bush really did try to improve the lives of most Americans. And he did have some fine accomplishments on that front. The Americans with Disabilities Act was a major accomplishment. We love to beat up on America. But, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act made our country at the forefront and still to this day One of the best, if not the best countries in terms of accommodating the lives of the disabled. If you weren't alive or if you haven't studied the era, you might not know just the rage, the the dire predictions of how this decent and kind act and necessary act and probably economically useful act, how it would just wreck the economy. And you know what happened to all those people who made those predictions then? Nothing. They were quickly rehabilitated and injected back into every policy discussion about government regulations we've ever had since. But George H.W. Bush was on the right side of that law. And he authorized the Clean Air Act, which seemed really derogore at the time, but now would cause howls of protests on the right. He even looked at certain kinds of semi-automatic weapons and said, well, those don't make sense to import into the United States. And guess what? He lost his endorsement from the NRA for that. Imagine that, a Republican president not being endorsed by the NRA just by doing something, you know, not so brave, just kind of common sense. Common sense was allowed back then. In the coming days... Just like we've seen in the last few, George H.W. Bush will be cited as a polite man from a more polite time. And the phrase you'll hear is that he had a noblesse oblige. I want to be fair about this. If you are a nobleman, it's easier to have that oblige, is it not? The comity of governance and the belief in compromise 
could be seen as a character virtue, but it really is easier for the scion of a senator to promote the status quo than it is for somebody who was born less nobly. Things aren't as desperate, and maybe you don't want angry or radical solutions if your dad was a senator, if your son is going to become president. That said, I do prefer a fair amount of agreeableness and good behavior in government. The burn-it-all-down populists of the right have gotten us nowhere, and in fact, I think theirs is more opposed than a commitment to real policy. The radical policy agenda of the left might sometimes seem more sincere. I don't think that necessarily makes them correct. George H.W. Bush cared about policy and details and the world. I interviewed his biographer on this show, and the The stories of his time as an ambassador to China are fascinating. He so enthusiastically threw himself into a different culture. It's really thrilling to consider that a president could ever do that. He will not only benefit from the gauzy haze of history and our our tendency to conflate eulogy and elegy, two different things. One is speech for the dead. The other is a speech of praise. But a funeral is also, of course, going to have plenty of complimentary comparisons to the current holder of the highest office. George H.W. Bush's greatest virtues, when we look back on them, were things like caution and realism. He won the Cold War nicely. He ran the Gulf War right. He ran it by not turning it into an Iraq war. He knew the limits of the military. He fretted about the fallout. But you know what? His biggest political liability were those same traits, realism and caution, because we, we came to call them a lack of imagination or a failure to sell unpopular policies. He had to combat the wimp factor. Remember that? And he raised taxes. Why would he ever raise taxes? Well, because he had to, and it was the right thing to do. So, as a consequence, he lost the election. And you are deceiving yourself if you don't think that all these considerations of his legacy are colored by the fact that he lost the election. He was one of nine presidents to lose re-election. He was the first Republican to be elected president who lost re-election since Herbert Hoover. Which brings me, I hope, I hope, to Donald Trump, speaking of one-term Republican presidents. Now, to get there, I went through the other George Bush, George W. Bush, because that's, I think, actually how history wends. This week, George W. Bush will be, he's grieving, the camera will find him, his eyes might be moist, we'll have a lot of sympathy for him, I'm a human being, we should have sympathy for people whose dads have died, he seemed to have a good relationship with his dad, although there was a lot of psychology going on, I think, that probably influenced his foreign policy. Maybe you could argue got a few thousand Americans killed. But George W. Bush will be portrayed as the obvious inheritor of his father's legacy, from president father to president's son. But I say George W. Bush is at least as much a precursor to the current Republican occupier of the office than he is a descendant of the last. Because George W. Bush was incurious, uncautious, and a bit cruel. And those aren't examples of the father's traits being visited upon the son. They're examples of the son at least helping to create an atmosphere that brought about our current moment. And it is a moment That will be mine for contrast during the state funeral, but make no mistake, without a George H.W. Bush, there's no George W. Bush, and without George W. Bush, perhaps there's no room for the ugliness of Trump. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader were born on either side of the election of George H.W. Bush to the presidency. 
One saw it all, the other showed up a year in. I think that really explains their differences. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, does not prefer to call the Rajneesh the Rajneesh. She calls him Osho. And if someone does call him the Rajneesh, she considers that an Osho violation. The gist. Let me give you a taste of the 1988 presidential election. George H.W. Bush would back an economic policy. And that is what I call a flexible freeze that allows growth. And no one would know what he was talking about. And then Michael Dukakis would come in with the zinger that was so much lamer than the original. A flexible freeze, somebody described it the other day as a kind of economic slurpee. Uh... (laughs) Oh, how I long for those days. Those corny, boring, relatively safe days. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.